going to pick up in our study. We've been working through John's first epistle uh, in um, these last number of, of weeks. And uh, this morning, we're going to kind of revisit a theme that, that John, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, seems to be really uh, bringing home uh, in a very recurring fashion. Um, oftentimes, when we see recurring themes in the Word of God, it ought to really kind of catch your attention because it's God's way of saying, pay attention right? Sometimes we need to be told things over and over. I need to be told things over and over. Does anybody else need to be told things over and over again? Am I the only? Yeah. So when we see certain themes in the scriptures, it highlights the priority of those subjects, but it also is presented for us so that we would be able to um, really uh, uh, apply that to our lives and honor God in that way. And so uh, John presents, uh, as John's presenting the answer uh, to the question that's kind of tied in with our whole series, the question is, how can I know that I have eternal life, right? That's why John's writing this epistle. He said, these things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. And, and so John is answering this question, and he will point us not only to a belief, but a belief that is evidenced by an expression of love, right? It's not something that is just something we can, like, we, we, we retain in our head, but rather it is a belief that is evidenced by an expression of love. Not only our professed uh, love for God, but a professed love for God that manifests or is perfected or matured in the way in which we love one another. And this is often, the, this is often um, woven throughout John's epistles, uh, this important um, value of, of loving one another. Obviously, John walking so closely with Jesus, this was something Jesus prioritized for his disciples, right? They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And so this morning, uh, the title of my message is this, Perfecting Love demonstrating our love for God through our love for others. Demonstrating our love for God through or by way of our love for others. So if you have your Bibles, we could uh, meet me there at 1 John chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off uh, last week. We're going to pick up in verse 7. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, John says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I like what John does here. He presents the contrast here, right? He's like, listen, as we love one another, he says, whoever loves has been born of God. Whoever loves knows God. If they're manifesting love, obviously they've been born of God. They know not just in their head, but of their heart. In contrast, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And you can't possibly know God in the way in which God wants us to know him intimately, right? And not manifest his love for others. And so John says, anyone who doesn't love God doesn't, uh, doesn't know God if he doesn't love others. And so the section opens up with a, a clear call to love people. First point that I want to bring to you is this. It is the call to love. 
a call to love. This is, as I mentioned, by no means a a new subject that John will present to us. In fact, it it is the third time in this very short epistle that he will present this this very same truth, which ought to kind of highlight the priority, the importance of what he's saying. We read earlier on in chapter 2 where John will hold up the the standard of, of loving one another as evidence that we are in the light, right? Here's how you'll know if you're in the light. If you love one another. He says, if we hate our brother, we are still in darkness. And we walk in darkness, right? And again, it is a clear call to those who are in the light to demonstrate or manifest the fact that they're in the light by the way in which we love others. And then he'll address it again in chapter 3 in verse 10. We see that we're told that the, the difference between those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil is by the way in which they extend love to one another. John holds up a metric of love by the way in which we extend it, not to God, but to one another. And this is woven all throughout very clearly in the text. In our text today, John is building on the the clear message that he's been presenting all along because because, because love is of God, right? We recognize love is from God, and we recognize that love is, is part of the very nature of God. We see that God is love, right? And so that's being held up as a, a supreme priority since we are his children. How many are his children, right? We are his children and we have a new nature. Then it only makes sense that we who are the children of God and have the new nature of Christ, right? This new redeemed nature ought to manifest the love that God manifests to us. And so we see a really clear connection that John lays out for us. Whoever loves is born of God. And whoever loves, he said, knows God. It's important to understand that John is not presenting love as a means of being born of God or knowing God. You don't, you don't love your way into the kingdom. Right? There's no way you can possibly love your way into the kingdom. You don't intellectually work your way into the kingdom. Love is not presented as a means of being born of God. Love is presented as the fruit that you've been born of God. Right? Love follows the fact that we've been born of God. And the way in which we know that we've been born of God is a life that expresses the love of God to one another. Right? It does not, it does not precede faith. It proceeds, comes after faith in Christ. It is the evidence, it is the fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives. That's why he says in verse 8, the one who doesn't love doesn't know God. Because God is love. You can't possibly say you know God and don't love and not love because God is love. This isn't the idea of, of knowing about God. I mean, James writes that even Satan knows about God and how many know it didn't do him any good. And so it's not this idea of just kind of knowing in our head but instead, and interestingly, in John's, uh, for in, in just in this epistle alone, this short epistle, 30 times John will make reference to the importance of knowing 
This idea of knowing goes beyond our intellectual assent. It doesn't stay retained in our minds, but instead it communicates the, the embracing and the application of knowledge. What we do with that knowledge will reveal whether we have that knowledge. It is not mere head knowledge that John is pointing us to. And so in keeping with the purpose of the, of the book, that you may know that you have eternal life, John Hall holds the metric of love as evidence that we have eternal life. And so we see the, the call to love as we live out our faith. This call to love clearly laid out from John. Let's continue verse 9. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that, he, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The first, the opening part, we see, we see the call of love. It's what we're all called to do. And now we see our second point. We see God's love for us. God's love for us. John opens up this section with this call, and then he very quickly presents to us the ultimate example of how God demonstrates his love for us. I love this because you see, God is not calling us to do anything that he has not done himself. We recognize that God loves us and he has demonstrated that love for us. He's not calling us to do anything that he has not done first. This call, is to, this call, is to, uh, this call to love is a call to reciprocate the love that we are the recipients of from God. And the paramount display of God's love toward us is evidenced in what? In the sending of his own son. God is love. And he demonstrated that love, right? It wasn't just something God verbalized, but it's something God demonstrated for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so we recognize that this was not just a, a, a verbal communication about love, but it is love in action. Love demonstrated. God showed he loved by sending his son. Look at our text. It says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world. Going back to the beginning of our text, what is he doing? He's, he's highlighting the, the incarnation once again to the naysayers that were bringing into question, right, the fact that the, the incarnation that Christ had, that, that God had come uh, in the form of man. Look at verse 10. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. God did not reciprocate our love for him. Aren't you thankful for that? Because we didn't have any love for him. We didn't even have any like for him. There is no desire. Romans says no man seeks after God. No man pleases God. In fact, we are the enemies of God. And so the reality of it is, if God only reciprocated that which we presented to him, we would still be lost and on our way to eternity in hell, separated from Christ forever. 
God did not reciprocate our love for him because we didn't love him. We were his enemies. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, Paul writes this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so we need to really get a grasp on what our position before God was at birth. We were born under the wrath of God. We were born as bad off as we possibly could be. No man seeks after God. None is righteous, not even one. If there was any goodness in us that was able to satisfy a holy God, Jesus would have never had to come to the earth. But he came because there is none that are righteous. We bring, we bring nothing to the table but our filthy rags. When we were as bad off as we possibly could be, while we were the enemies, right? The enemies of God. We weren't neutral. We were the enemies of God. And when we were in our worst possible place, and I think that I think we 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 take these simple truths of being born sinners and, and this awareness of that we, 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 we make it so um, simple in our minds that it, the, the impact of that escapes us. We don't realize that we have violated the law of God on every point. And we stand condemned before the judge of the universe. We were the enemies of God. But... God so loved the world. He didn't just start over with us. He didn't just ignore us. He didn't just cast us aside. For while we were his enemies, we were, look at verse 10, reconciled to God. How? By the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Why was it necessary for the son to die? Because the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to pay the price for that sin. If you and I just pay the price for our sin, that sin, we would rightly be getting what we deserve. But Christ, who knew no sin, Christ, who was completely innocent, took upon our sins on himself. And God judged us, judged our sin, not in us, but in Christ. We were the enemies of God, not by our will, but by our nature. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus that we are children of wrath. Born under the wrath of God. I mean, you don't get into a, any worse place than that. Now, I know that doesn't sound nice. Oftentimes people say, well, I get that, I read that, but I'm really not that bad, actually. I'm, you know. <laughs> The, scriptures doesn't, the scripture doesn't teach that every person is as bad as they possibly can be. I mean, some people are, right? We, I mean, you see some of that. But the reality of it is it's not that man is as bad off, or is, is, is as bad as he possibly could be. The problem with man is at no point is he good enough to stand on his own merits before a holy God. It's at no point is he good enough. And that's why Christ came. That's why Christ died. That's why Christ took the punishment that was directed towards us upon himself. 
Look what he says in verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John revisits the use of this word propitiation from chapter 2 and verse 2. And propitiation refers to the, to the only satisfactory covering of sin. There is nothing that man can produce. There's nothing that man can exchange. There's nothing that man can present that will satisfy a holy God. The only satisfaction that, that is, that is um, valuable to God and accepted by God is the sacrifice of his son. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And when Christ, our perfect sacrifice, came to the earth for us on our behalf, he who knew no sin became sin for you and I. And all of the wrath, listen, this is the beautiful exchange that, that took place. All of the wrath that was directed towards us because we were born in sin was directed towards Christ on the cross. He absorbed the full wrath of God upon himself and did so, so much so that the, the wrath that was upon us was turned into God's favor. Why? Because he absorbed all of it. For all of those who would embrace the Son, for all of those who would embrace the work of Christ, for all of those who would say, I cannot save myself, I put all my trust in the work of Christ as the only means of my salvation, Christ paid it all for us. He is the propitiation. He was our satisfactory covering before God. And so as a child of God, you will, you will never experience the wrath of God. Why? Because it's all been poured out on the Son on our behalf. He took it all upon himself. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because of his great love for us. Listen, if, if that doesn't wreck you, I invite you to journey into a, dis a greater discovery of God's love for you. Truth like that that doesn't wreck us only demonstrates that it hasn't gone down deep enough. And we need to dig deeper into the word of God and understand what our position really was prior to Christ's coming. And doing that pursuit, knowing we will never fully be able to grasp the depths of God's love for us on this side of eternity. And if you're not sure to what degree you understand the love of God, have you ever had that question with yourself? Like you think, you, know, you have to raise your hand, but it's just kind of like, how much do I really love you, God? I mean, I want to think I love you as much as I'm supposed to, but how much do I really love? Wouldn't you love to get that question answered? Do you know John answers that question so beautifully in this text? John gives us the metric, the perfect metric, in knowing how much we understand the love of God, for it will be seen in our third point. It will be seen in our love for others. 
Now, I didn't make that connection. John doesn't even make that connection. The Holy Spirit that inspired John to write the text says, here's how you'll know how much you really love God. It will be seen and evidenced in your way, the way in which you love others. That's hard. Look at verse 11. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we, if we love one another, God abides in us, and, and his love is perfected in us. It's like John holds up this, this incredible example of how God's love was demonstrated to us, and he says, hey, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You know, this word ought is, is a really weak word in the English language. Obviously, this, the, the, the text that we hold is, was not written in English, and sometimes our English language really limits the impact of the word and, and this is of what, what, the, what the author is getting across, and, and this is clearly one of those examples. You know, in, 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 our, in our English language, when, when we use the word ought, it, it's really kind of reserved for like, it's a mere suggestion. It's like, hey, you, you ought to go check out that sushi place down the road. It's really good. You like it. Hey, you, you, ought, to, you ought to send your resume out to that company. They're hiring. and You, you, you might like it. You ought, you ought to give it a shot. It's, it's a mere suggestion, but that is not the intent of what is being said here. The original language is, is far more emphatic about this. The Greek word here is ophilio, and it means to be obligatory in view of some moral or legal requirement. To be obligatory in view of some moral or legal requirement. That changes everything. That moves it from a suggestion to a mandate. In other words, if God so loved us, you are legally and morally required, obligated to love one another. That takes the ought right off the table. That's what we're called to do. Do we do that all the time? Nope. We're on this journey, right? That's what we're pushing towards. That's what the Spirit of God is working in us to show our love for God by the way in which we love others. We are legally and morally, we don't like to be required to do anything. Right? So our old, our old nature by, by its very essence is rebellious and rebellion towards God. It doesn't want to have to obey and submit and yet this is exactly what the new nature is called to do. To be the love of God for others, to extend the love of God to others, to, to direct the love that we have for God towards others. Look at verse 12. It says, No one has ever no one has ever seen God. That sure makes it easy to love a God that we don't see. Right? It's like he's like this idea of loving God is easy to love a God we don't see. We do see our brethren. <laughs> Sometimes that's not so easy. With all of their humanity and all of their imperfections, just like ours. Have you discovered sometimes people are difficult to deal with? 
Have you discovered that you're difficult to deal with? we're, We're not there yet. There's still so much on the inside that needs to be, that I, that I need to die to. And you know, but when I, when I look, listen, and here's, man, if we could just capture this. If we could look at one another through the lens of Christ and go out of our way to, to extend our sincere and genuine love for God to one another, you know what will end up happening? We'll have a sincere and genuine love for one another. And I think that's how God designed all this. Because we are the, the body of Christ. Verse 12 puts a face to the one we are to love. But look what happens when we do. If we love one another, he says, God abides in us. In other words, it demonstrates that God abides in us. That's the reality. When we, are, when we are loving one another, it demonstrates that God abides in us. You ever, you ever have the thought in your mind that you're going to do something good for someone, you don't do it? You don't have to raise your hand. What is that? It's the Spirit of God saying, hey, would you please love that person through me, through you? And we're like, yeah, no. You don't understand, God, I've had a bad day. Do you know who that person is, God? Do you realize what they did, you know? But you see that, 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 that initial awareness of, of the opportunity to show the love, what is that? That's the spirit of God at work in us saying, oh, can I just love that person through you? John says, that's exactly what you ought to do. It's the idea of maturity. We're being perfected, right? What is that? I mean, not that we're perfect, but we are, we are being perfected. It's a process of sanctification, of, sanctification, of maturing and, and becoming more and more like Christ. And we do that when we direct our love for the God who we don't see. We are demonstrating that perfected love on the ones that we do see. And that's what John is holding up is this, not as a suggestion, but as the standard. That's love in action. When we grasp God's love for us and respond by extending that love to others, it's matured, it's, it's perfected. Our love for God is, is immature and incomplete when it's not extended to others. You say, listen, I, I, just, I love God. I just can't stand his people. Then your love and awareness of God is, is immature at best, absent at worst. Loving others, even those who may be difficult to love, demonstrates the transformative power of God's love within us. I'll go far as to say that's the best way to demonstrate the transformative power of God's love in us by extending it to those people who are the most difficult. Now, after hearing this message, if it seems like everybody's extending love to you, you might be that difficult person, I don't know. But, but God will, you know, God will always, have you noticed? God will always put those people in your path, Right? There's always, there's always going to be somebody that just rubs you the wrong way. And when they finally, when, I got an extra hour today, I was told. So um, <laughs> when they finally exit your life and you've got that sigh of relief 
It does, it, within, within days, somebody else comes in. Why? Because God puts somebody into your life and the reality is, is you're that to somebody else. That's how God sanctifies. That's why he causes us to be together so that we can rub off on one another so that we can be iron that sharpens iron. Don't run from each other. You're just gonna find somebody down the road just like them. And you'll bring yourself with you. Let's, look in, let's continue. Verse 13. So many faces coming to my brain. <laughs> I'm sure I'm in somebody else's mind as well. <laughs> Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in him, in, abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. Now again, what, what John is, John is re, certainly reiterating the same truth of the importance of extending love as a reflection of who is abiding within us. But this passage of scripture, he inserts something different. He inserts the Trinity into the equation. The fourth point that I want to bring out to you is this. The Trinity's love for us. The Trinity's love for us. We see in this text, without changing the focus, what John will do by the, under the inspiration of the Spirit is he will present no less than 18 times just in these couple of verses. We see a distinct reference to each person of the Godhead. Look at verse 13. Again, we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in us. 18 times in these couple of verses, we see reference to the distinct persons of the Godhead. The Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One in essence, three in person. Now, if you were in our class Wednesday night, you'd know that. And it was great to have a group there. But use this as a plug. Come on out this Wednesday night. We're going to be getting into more areas of doctrine. But we covered the area of the Trinity um, uh, certainly not um, exhaustively, but looking at what the word has to say about that. The clear biblical teaching of the Trinity celebrates that God is one in essence, yet three in persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing, distinctly separate, and yet one in essence. A comprehensive understanding of the Trinity is beyond our limited reach. I mean, the reality of it is there is going to, there, we are so limited as creation to fully comprehend the full nature of God. Now, there'll be a day where we'll see him, we'll be like him, we'll know him, Paul says, even as we are known by him. And so that 
that, that truth will become so much more real to us when we're on to the other, over to the other, the other side. But the scripture teaches and clearly teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. It's woven all throughout the Old and New Testament. From the very beginning when God said, let us, plural, make man in our own image. And we see woven all throughout, we see the Trinity at work all throughout, all the way throughout Revelation. I love the way Peter opens up his first epistle. He highlights the, the cooperation, the working of the Trinity in our salvation. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, he introduces himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Cappadocia Asia, and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter, in just this simple opening, expresses that we, have, we, are, the, we, we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit because of the shedding blood of Jesus Christ. We see the Godhead at work in our salvation. I want you to know the Trinity loves you. The Trinity loves you. We see the love of the Father in sending the Son to us. We see the love of the Son in dying for us. And we see the love of the Holy Spirit in his abiding within us. The triune God loves you and is actively participating in your salvation. Next point we're gonna look at is seen in verse 17, overcoming fear with love. Fifth point is overcoming fear with love. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now there's a lot going on in this passage here. It's important to understand this through the lens of why John is writing this in the first place. He is contrasting those who are true believers, right, those who are in the light, with those who are not believers, those who are still walking in darkness. That was the issue that was existing within the churches that John was writing to at that time. And he says those who are true believers can have a confidence on the day of judgment. Why? Because Christ already took upon himself all of God's wrath that was directed towards us. Christ took it upon himself. And so there is therefore now no wrath left for you. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 17 and verse 16 are actually connected together. Look again at verse 16. It says, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this, because of this truth that is evident in your life, love is perfected so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Christ took it all. 
upon himself, as we saw before. That's why we celebrate communion. That moment of pause where we look back with love and appreciation and thankfulness for what Christ has done for us. Notice what he says here. He says, as he is, so also are we in the world. What in the world does he mean by that? It means that we are not under God's judgment, just like Christ was not under God's judgment. You see, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? As he is, so are we in this world. And so we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because of that, we are hidden with Christ in God, right? We are in union with Christ. And so because of what Christ has done for us, we have nothing to fear when it comes to the day of judgment. Isn't that great news? I shared earlier this morning, I, I said, you know, I remember, you know, being a kid getting called down to the principal's office. I spent a lot of time in the principal. I had a desk in the principal's office. I did. And, and so I spent a lot of time, mom will tell you, I, I, had a, I, had a, I was in the principal's office a lot. And as soon as I'd hear in the PA to send me to the principal's office, I'm thinking, oh, what did they catch me doing now? I knew I was guilty. That was the, that wasn't the, I just wasn't sure what I was getting in trouble for this time, like what caught up with me, right? But there was nothing better than when I get called into the principal's office and I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't in trouble. They just wanted me to, you know, do something or say something. Or, and be like, ah, oh. The reality of it is there'll never be a day if you've embraced Christ and hey if you're not in the faith if you've not embraced Christ if you've not repented of your sins then then you need to make this right before God so that you can have this kind of confidence but if you've put your trust in Christ as your only means of salvation there will never be a moment where you have to worry about the other foot dropping and God condemning or judging or pouring his wrath out on you why because he has none left for you he's put it all on his son on the cross and because of that that perfect love, it casts out fear. We don't need to worry because there's no punishment available to us. That's good news. Hey, legalism is fear, right? Legalism is, hey, I better do this, otherwise God's gonna do this. If I, if I, don't, if I don't jump through that hoop and, and cross that line and do this, then God's going to get me. That's not how your father operates. That's legalism. Legalism is man's attempt to try to earn God's favor, and it never, ever accomplishes that. That's what religion is. Religion is man's attempt to get to God, and it falls short every single time. Jesus didn't come to establish a religion. He came that we might be redeemed, that we might be in relationship with him, right? Religion is man's attempt to God. Redemption is Christ, God's attempt to reach man. And it is the only grounds by which God is satisfied and accepts us. Don't confuse fear with reverence. Proverbs 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we ought to have a healthy, holy reverence for God, but you don't need to be afraid of God in the sense that he's going to do something contrary to his word. Too many people bound up in doing out of fear of God instead of doing out of love for God. Let me repeat that. Too many people bound up in doing out of fear for God. 
I better do this, otherwise God's gonna get me, instead of doing out of love for God. I do this because I love him. There's no fear in love because perfect love, which is evidenced love that extends towards others as a response to the love that we've been recipients of. It eliminates fear and judgment. And John ties our love for others back again to God's love for us. We love, he says, because he first loved us. If he didn't shed his love towards us, we would never have loved him. We would have stayed dead in our trespasses and sins. Lastly, in John's closing comments, he'll direct us now to the sixth point, the, the logic of love. The logic of love. And with this all close. Verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. I love how clearly raw that is. Right? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Going back to what we saw before. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister. The text does a masterful job of causing us to look back at what God has done for us and then calls us to lovingly respond back to God by loving one another. That's how we reciprocate the love that we have freely received. We freely extend it. And as recipients of God's unfathomable love, we are called to reflect that love in our relationships with others. Our love for God is perfected when it is manifest in our love towards our brothers and our sisters. Church, let us not remember, or let us remember, that our love is not confined to words alone. But it needs to be evident in our actions towards others, in our kindness, in our compassion, in our willingness to forgive. These are all the characteristics of how Christ has treated us. We ought to extend that to others. May we continually seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit, allowing God's love to flow through us and touch the lives of those around us. Let's strive to be living testimonies living examples, living epistles of God's love, knowing that in doing so, we bring glory to his name and we fulfill his greatest commandment. What is that? Jesus gave it to us in Matthew chapter 22. He said, you shall love the Lord God with all of your heart and all your soul and all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let us love God and one another in a way that demonstrates our awareness of the love that we have freely received. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you did not just say you love us. You showed us you loved us by the sending of the Son. 
Jesus, thank you that you didn't just say you loved us, but you demonstrated your love by going to the cross for us. Holy Spirit, thank you that you didn't just say you love us, but you showed us you love us by indwelling us. I pray, Lord, that for each and every one of us this morning, that we would look for ways to demonstrate our love for you by the way in which we love others. Help us to get out of the way. Help us to put aside our preconceived ideas and let us be an extension of your love. May we be known by our love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.